0: there. Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today I'm joined by and Dionysus and we are going to be talking about Isaiah Berlin's The Two Concepts of Liberty. Uh, neither of us has read Leo Strauss's critique of this yet. We're going to talk about that next time. So this is our own attempt to understand the essay and the next time we'll talk about Strauss's approach to the essay. Okay, so Isaiah Berlin. He sees John Stuart Mill is one of the most essential articulators of what liberty is. But he finds within Mill two distinct accounts of liberty that have been smushed together, but which need to be separated and made distinct. It seems to be one of the core purposes of the essay. So on one hand, he says that Mill is one of the greatest champions of what Berlin calls negative liberty or freedom from coercion. Negative liberty presupposes a sharp line between where public authority ends and private life begins. Negative liberty is the area within which the subject or person is or should be left to do whatever he pleases. It is the area within which a man is not to be obstructed by others. To speak anachronistically, I suppose you could say that the founder's natural rights more or less point towards this a kind of circumscription of a private area that the government shouldn't be allowed to touch. Fokin, would you add anything about the character of negative liberty? I would add, uh, I have, the, there's this
1: quote by Berlin, and it echoes, he says this kind of thing several times in the essay, but there's this good quote where he gives his uh, breakdown, and he says, those who want negative liberty, uh, they want to curb authority as such, and those who want positive liberty want, to place, want authority placed in their own hands. And I think that is a good, I don't know, shifting point to look at for this, for these two definitions.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's perfect for moving from negative into positive. Uh, Good, good. So um, on the other hand, Berlin sees in Mill what you could call a nascent notion of positive liberty, um, that he thinks doesn't have a necessary connection to negative liberty. So in Mill, the way that the positive side of liberty is described is when Mill talks about the development of original and non-conforming personalities. Berlin builds on this account from Mill, adding that positive freedom is the wish to be a subject and not an object, to be moved by reason or purposes that are my own and not by external ideas or causes that move me. I think as Berlin puts it at one point, um, when speaking of the positive liberty position, I am free if and only if I plan my life in accordance with my own will. The shorthand for this kind of freedom is freedom to, whereas the shorthand for negative liberty would be freedom from. Now, the positive kind of liberty, I think, is more at home in a progressive revision uh, to the original American project that hopes that the government can in some sense, subsidize the elimination of all the obstacles that would prevent me from planning my own perfect life or something along those lines. Um, Fokin, would you add anything to the positive liberty account?
1: I would just say that I think we'll see that Berlin ultimately finds that version of liberty more dialectically consistent, you might say. But we'll see that he's troubled by it.
0: Right. Yeah. So in sum, to just sort of fill out this sort of introductory remark, just to sort of like bring out the basic uh, initial argument of his essay or description, uh, he says, Berlin claims that within the origins of liberalism, there's already this kind of tension that we've just described between negative liberty, which is a sphere of freedom from coercion and positive liberty, which is a desire to live an authentic life in which we move ourselves. Mill thinks that the conditions generated by negative liberty are necessary for the development of creative personalities, but Berlin himself points out, this is maybe a crucial admission, that many expressive and powerful personalities have been produced under completely opposite conditions, that sometimes oppressive or what a liberal would see as oppressive circumstances actually produce the highest and most uh, exultant forms of life. He doesn't put it like that, but he more or less says you could have a pretty beautiful, he doesn't even use the word beautiful actually, but a pretty impressive personality could emerge under very illiberal circumstances. And so in that way, he doesn't see a necessary development between Mill's account of negative liberty and the movement towards positive liberty, that these things can be severed from each other and that that kind of is a problem that he's going to be circling around. Um, so, Fokin, you, in light of this, you wanted to say something about Berlin weighing values and rights or something like that?
1: Yeah, I think he ends up where, say, for example, the United States Supreme Court ends up when it tries to solve this, I guess it's a tricky problem. I mean, it appears to be a tricky problem because people are always, always getting hamstrung by it. What so, what Mil, sorry, what Berlin uh, is trying to accomplish, he wants there to be a form of liberty that can be articulated that does not and cannot lead to something like a totalitarian, whether it be fascistic or communistic, a totalitarian government. Mm -hmm. And he sees that the positive view of liberty, the full view of liberty, can easily uh, lead to this because, for example, it just becomes logically necessary to say something like, if you don't know what is good for you, then having the authority or the ability to choose for yourself uh, doesn't make you free because being free would be choosing what is good for you, right? You're not free if every one of your choices leads to regret. Right. Right. Uh, and so because this is obviously true there uh is a very simple you know the government can oftentimes come around and say we are going to make decisions for you mm-hmm. uh so for example our government right now is attacking nicotine for I I mean I don't know uh <laughs> what about the present day economic and social turmoil leads them to think well this is the time to attack <laughs> nicotine and cigarettes and uh the the electronic cigarette company Juul you know that's they're doing that right now so what's the premise the premise is obviously we know better and you know it's obviously true that it's possible for a government or a wise man or even just a sensible person to know better than another person what is in their interest, right, right. It happens all of the time, so uh, <clears throat> Berlin seems to be looking for a solution to this problem. How do we get a dialectically consistent definition of liberty that doesn't collapse or fold into to what, you know what he probably thinks of as totalitarianism mm-hmm. uh, You know, in this essay, he doesn't say fascism is bad, communism is good, communism is bad, fascism is good. He doesn't like – he seems to indicate that both are illiberal and would be bad. Um, So in that sense, he takes the sort of –
0: well, I think him and Arendt would agree on a lot of things. Hmm. And it it also seems like he thinks that this – I guess what he calls like the rationalist metaphysic – is also present or latent in liberalism. And so there's a temptation, even within the liberal frame of reference to become totalitarian, sort of like along the lines of that you're suggesting that uh, smoking could be one of these things. And there could be many other things that the government says that you have to think because you don't know any better. Right.
1: Uh, He points out, in fact, what you just say, that even a, even a liberal if it, even if the liberals are like totally devoted to a negative concept of liberty, they can still you know talk about well, they know human nature and you have rights but not a right to this you know? mm-hmm. uh, so uh and you can kind of see so what does Berlin think he's doing you know while I did just say. Berlin seems to think that uh, communism and fascism are both totalitarian. He mm-hmm. does appear to have a certain reverence for Marx. Like Marx for Berlin seems like the maybe the last guy who really tried to solve you know, this problem. Let me pull mm-hmm. up this quote here. And Marx failed, you know, uh, according to Berlin. So right. we get this quote Marx and his disciples maintained that the path of human beings was obstructed not only by natural forces or the imperfections of their own character, but even more by the workings of their social institutions, which they had originally created, not always consciously for certain purposes, but whose functioning they systematically came to misconceive. Let me repeat that. But whose functioning... They systematically came to misconceive and which thereupon became obstacles in their creator's progress. So for Marx um, and for Berlin, I believe, there is this, the basic problem of social institutions is that they are misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And if they were understood, they would not form an obstacle to progress or to, you know, liberty or happiness. Mm -hmm. So... uh, What I think Berlin is at at earlier on in this essay, I believe Berlin sees himself as someone who will complete what Marx failed to do. He's going to take the thorny question of liberty, resolve it, uh, and then we can, you know, once this miscon, you know, he will remove the misconception in himself, right? He will solve the riddle for himself, and then this can be, you know. Propagated or whatever, and mm-hmm. we can finally move on from the constant problem that we have that we had in the 20th century and will continue to have uh, in this century. That ev- the notions of liberty that exists can uh, be misunderstood, or mm, you know, they don't always lead to where the liberal would like them to lead. Right. Um, so this leads, and this. Uh, this is the last part of my little spiel. So he <clears throat> Berlin ends his um, ends saying, okay, well, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't claim I've resolved the problem of Liberty. He just says, man, it just sucks that we're, he doesn't say it sucks, but he says, we're going to have to just weigh rights. We're going to have to weigh the right to Liberty. And we're going to have to weigh the right to all these other values, like equality, justice, mm-hmm. Uh, public order, security, these kinds of things. So, which is a way if uh, I always find the hand waving answer, which I will reiterate, is the answer our Supreme Court gives to these problems. Mm-hmm. It doesn't see another way around it. Um, <clears throat> and there's a scholar at Notre Dame by the name of Munoz who has, uh, if not a solution, something very close to the solution uh, in the thought of Madison and, and so. But um, in any event, so <clears throat> for the court, I mean, but the problem with this claim, I mean, what do you do? You're like, and it's Rawls too. You're like, well, we just have all these competing claims. There's no way. There is no way of determining between them which should have pride of place. Mm-hmm. Right? This, is, this is what they're avoiding. They're avoiding saying that liberty is paramount or any, any value, quote unquote value is paramount um which is a, a roundabout way of denying that there is an ideal way of life or a or a best way of life right
0: like reason is too weak to discover it or to see it clearly enough to convince yeah. others or something like that or or that maybe nobody has access to it right right
1: so um but of course so okay you want to say that you say that that's fine but then on what grounds are you weighing it still doesn't make sense like weighing according to what ultimately it- you still have to make a standard by which you weigh the competing rights and so you still provide an answer and this is what's this is why right wingers tend to view lefties intellectual lefties like berlin and others especially in the court as li- liars or cowards that they <laughs> they do what they're afraid to do and then they say they don't do it Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So um, that's, that's good. Cause I think that, I don't know if you want to move. Yeah, let's move on. But, but I think cause that, I think like lays the ground for what I, I wanted to talk about um, in, in a sense that like Berlin insists that you cannot adjudicate between what he calls absolute values. And it seems like negative and positive liberty are both things that he holds or asserts are absolute values that you can't rationally adjudicate between the two of them, though he clearly has a massive preference in a sense for negative liberty at the same time that he's sensitive to some sort of longing in us for the answers that positive liberty seems to provide. Um, So I don't know, it, it seems to me that he's sort of has a kind of confused movement back and forth where on one hand he seems to be fighting against what might look like a world state. So if he's writing during the cold war, maybe that could almost look like a battle between something like negative liberty and something like positive liberty. Um, Or you could put it in theoretical terms and say like some sort of either Hegelian or Marxist resolution um, to political logic orients us or points us towards some kind of world government, Um, that if there is one idea, one sort of account of the purpose of human life, uh, history might work out these tensions in such a way that you sort of get one type of state. And in as much as Berlin says that there are many purposes, many valid purposes for human life, uh, we can't really have that resolution. Um, And so On one hand, it seems like he says that life is going to be inherently conflictual, that there will always be a competition between these separate values uh, or separate absolute values. But as much as he wants to kind of preserve this, what you could call like a deep form of diversity of political communities, there's a way in which mm, uh, he's still advancing a universal position, Um, that he, like, I think this is kind of what you were saying, Fokian, is that he wants to say, well, you can't really choose, but ultimately he's still advancing a universal position. So he thinks that everybody, like every nation or country should adhere to, at least in a minimal way, something like negative liberty, or that there should at least be a minimal amount of negative liberty in every country. Um, And so that leads him to say that pluralism is the humane way forward. And uh, OK, so we're supposed to tolerate many different ways, but we also can't tolerate ways that don't meet this minimum standard of adhering to negative liberty. Um, as, I think as he puts it, he says that a nation that doesn't agree with some minimum standard of negative liberty is uh, justifying, quote, barbarities of procrustes, the vivisection <laughs> of actual human communities into some fixed pattern dictated by our wholly fallible understanding of a largely imaginary past or a wholly imaginary future, uh, end quote. So it seems like he's saying we have to, all of us, everywhere, agree that human goals are many and that these many goals are not commensurable. And yet somehow it follows from this that we can't dispense with at least some sphere of negative liberty or rights all over the globe. But it seems like if that's true, then there has to be somebody who's going to enforce those rights all over the globe. Rights require some sort of overarching sovereign to enforce them or they don't mean anything. Um, So it's, I don't know, it seems to me, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but that Berlin is crossing his fingers that there is a big enough coalition of human beings who just like negative liberty for very different reasons. As he puts it, some of them like to call it natural rights. Some of them like to call it natural law. Some of them like to say it's God's word that gives us these things. Some of them say, well, this meets the demand of utility. Some of them say, no, this is just part of the permanent interests of man. So even though those like five accounts that could lead you to think that we should have negative liberty all presuppose vastly different accounts of the way that things are, he hopes that they point enough to the right way or towards his way, towards this negative liberty for all kind of way. And that. In a way that will be continued, well, sorry, that we will continue to be habituated to this preference, that this preference will kind of be built into our mental architecture. But he says through history that like you'll have, you can only be, quote, a normal person, uh, end quote, if you believe in this kind of thing. So it's almost like he's sort of saying like, well, I can't quite say that my way is correct, but I really hope over time enough of you just end up believing this um, or something like that. Yeah,
1: the word normal, there's a couple words, like the word normal <clears throat> and the word pluralism especially that just jump out at you when you're reading this because they, they seem so inconsistent with what he initially opened promising to accomplish. And then later he's like, okay, normalistly and uh, pluralism. Those words were not there in the beginning. Right. You know? He doesn't open the essay talking about pluralism and how we're going to have a hodgepodge of normalcy, something like that. He doesn't do that. It just comes out the end where he's like, shoot. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly think he sat down to write this with high hopes and decided that either it could not, he decided while writing this, either that it, he could not resolve it at all or he could, or at least he could not resolve it in the time he had allotted to write this essay. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I, th- I
0: think that's right because it, it seems like the first couple sections open up, like they, they have what at least appears to be a kind of philosophic openness or sort of, I want to give you an account of what this is. I want to give you an account of what that is. And I I don't, I mean, he has that like crazy section, section three, uh, which has like a lot of really cool quotations, but he talks about, well, you know, some people, uh, who can't get what they want, you know, end up just reframing their desires in a kind of like ascetic or stoic way. just like, well, I just have to squelch up or like, you know, just eliminate my desires so that I don't desire anything that I can't get right now, as opposed to, you know, trying to become good enough to get the things that you want. But he doesn't bring that up. But the moral of the story is like the first three or four parts, there's a kind of, old, I don't know if it's like levity or it just like, felt like there was like a mind with great confidence that, yeah also had a kind of openness and it sort of turns as you're suggesting when he realizes maybe he's failed or can't accomplish what he wishes to. And then it turns into just like, just be normal. Okay. Just be normal. Normal people agree (laughs) with what I think. Okay. So just (laughs) please believe me that this is the right way. And it's, I mean,
1: it's a shame because he mentions, you know, the, he places, Benjamin Constant as the greatest interpreter of liberalism. He sa- he even says that. Right. But if he had only like taken some of Constant's formulations um, in the liberty of the ancients and moderns or the liberty of the ancients compared with that of the moderns, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. if, he only, if, it, if he had only taken the formulations from that essay, he might have, I think, seen the problem because it's, like you say, in the beginning of the essay, the way he formulates the problem is very compelling. Right, mm-hmm. he's one of these guys who's like, "All right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write the most compelling problem that I can." You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to cut any corners to make the problem seem easier to solve than it is. Mm-hmm. And he does that very well. Right. Um, and if he had maybe then relied on the man whom he says is the greatest interpreter of liberalism, which I don't think is true, by the way, I don't think Constant is the greatest interpreter of liberalism. It's very, I thought, it, I found it striking that. He said that for one, and then for two, just ignored <laughs> Constance's you know, solutions to these problems. Who so, is the greatest interpreter of liberalism? Who? Yeah, uh, I mean John Locke, I think. But I know there's going to be some Jewish person out there who says Spinoza. No, not because you're Jewish. Sorry. <laughs> um, there's going to be someone out there who says Spinoza because Spinoza was first, uh, mm-hmm. unless you want to say Machiavelli is found a liberal. I think. By the way, for the Straussians out there, Machiavelli <laughs> is the founder of modernity, but modernity is not necessarily liberalism. That is founded by Spinoza and Locke, according to Strauss,
0: I believe. Um, anyway, Good. sorry, I just wanted to get you on the record, since people – <laughs> I bet they'd want to know if you say Constance not the best, but anyway. Yeah, but anyway, that's pretty yeah. great. But <laughs> I, it's my
1: it's my view that John Locke gives you know the 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 most compelling version of the noble lie that is liberalism. So, mm. and he does that because he is the sage lock, you know? <laughs> uh, um,
0: so yeah. So how, how could Berlin have learned from constant or what do you think that he should have learned from constant that would have made him see things more clearly?
1: Well, we just get this beautiful formulation by Constant at the beginning of the essay I referenced. I'll read this. I won't read the whole paragraph. I'll just read part of this quote here. Uh, Ancient liberty consisted in exercising collectively but directly several parts of the complete sovereignty and deliberating in the public square over war and peace and forming alliances with foreign governments. And voting laws, and pronouncing judgments, and examining the accounts, the acts, the stewardship of the magistrates, and calling them to appear to the assembled people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the point. The point is, is that the ancient people had actual power in the, in the polis. They right. they exercised actual sovereignty. Uh, and as we said in the the last our last lecture thing Mm -hmm. we have to what's the name we call these they're not lectures they're not a podcast anyway we'll have to come Uh, come up with something yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um in these lessons in these in our last lesson we talked about how constant uh pointed out that ancients had very little what we would call freedom but that's because they were the rulers in the state, and that mm-hmm. modern freedoms are premised on moderns not having those that power. Um, right. So, not having the power, it would be absurd or cruel to ask moderns to sacrifice the way the ancients sacrificed, because the moderns don't have the same compensation for that sacrifice that the ancients had. Mm-hmm. This very yeah. elegant. A description of the what we would call the two forms of... Because ancient liberty for Constant is quite clearly
0: positive liberty in Berlin, I would say. Maybe yes. you disagree, but... No, that, that seems right to me. I mean, because yeah. even he says negative liberty is a new, a relatively new idea. Whereas he lists Plato amongst Hegel and Marx as those who have something in mind like positive liberty. Um, so that seems... Yeah, right to me. Although it's obviously Plato doesn't think that political life could become fully rational. It's like the individual might be capable of that kind of perfection, but the city will not be, but, um, we don't have to talk about, um, that kind of thing. But, but I just wanted to add on to your point where you talked about the ancients, there's this sort of desire or this ability to rule over others, Um, and that that's what political life consists in, it's rule. But if you look at the beginning of Berlin's essay, um, he says, and he uses the term central, the central political question is this, the question of obedience and coercion, or in other words, why should I obey anyone else? Why should I not live as I like? Must I obey? If I disobey, may I be coerced? But there's nothing about ruling, uh, nothing about friends and enemies. It seems like it's a a kind of a form of political life that sort of already presupposes, like, you should not be ruling. Nobody should be ruling over anybody. There should be law that rules and nothing else. Humans no longer rule over humans. And that he's already sort of – that's the way to think about political life is start thinking about should I obey anybody and why, not about how to rule or should I rule or who should rule. Right.
1: And that's what he this the way you put it, like we're going to get rid of the. It's almost like we're getting rid of the question of ruling, right? Yeah. That's what I by by the way, what I mean when I say he sought to solve the problem in the way that Marx had failed. Like he's Mm going to figure out a way that we can have nations and have public order or whatever without politics without rule Mm -hmm. and I think for leftists when they talk about the power of thinking and the power of ideas and that ideas are action right for Marx an idea is an action and Mm -hmm. in a different sense it is for Plato and all these guys too but for Marx an idea is an action because the thought is once we do away in thought, once we figure out how to do this without oppression, then we then that's the big accomplishment. Mm-hmm. The, the hard thing is figuring it out, and it just hasn't been done yet, right? Um, and Berlin failed as much as anyone else has,
0: <laughs> right? <clears throat> uh, so should we talk about the sort of weird, tragic, or poetic position that he takes at the end?
1: Yeah, what? How Berlin copes with his failure, or how he views his failure? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, he, right. He right. He becomes poetic at the end of his
0: uh, essay. Yeah, yeah. So he, it's like so. He, so he claims that there is an irreconcilable tension between negative and positive liberty on the grounds that they are both absolute values if he does very little to say what makes them absolute, sort of in the same way that I think Strauss had put it when he's talking about Faber, uh, that like Faber didn't do that much. I mean, he wrote so, so much, but then his central theoretical claim about there being no rational ability to adjudicate between values, he devoted far fewer pages to that problem or question that Faber seemed to take as, in a way, sort of central. He was tortured by his inability to answer these questions, uh, between choosing between God and the devil or things like that. But, um, so then one is forced to ask, uh, why should I prefer Berlin's ideal? Like, why should I prefer his position? If there's an irreconcilable tension between negative and positive Liberty. And well, here is in a way how Berlin tries to convince you. Well, first of all, he tells you, as we talked about before, this is what normal people think. Um, which in a way on certain issues, I think is not a crazy thing to say about things, but not about this. Uh, but he, he has this cool quote from Joseph Schumpeter, uh, or at least a kind of poetic quote, to realize the relative validity of one's convictions and yet stand for them unflinchingly is what distinguishes a civilized man from a barbarian. It's a, it's a cool quotation in a way. Um, it's, it's almost like Berlin is uh, summoning a kind of noble or beautiful sentiment that you'd be willing to sacrifice on behalf of the relative validity of your convictions. Um, and that that's what makes you a real, a real man or a civilized man. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of interesting in the essay, he doesn't really make any appeals to the noble or even use the word nobility at all. And, and I thought it was going to come up earlier when he was talking about peoples, maybe especially peoples who are colonized or something that they they seek for freedom and that they would be willing to dispense with the natural or sorry, not natural, but the negative Liberty given to them by like their colonial rulers or something like that, that they would sacrifice some of that freedom in order to rule over themselves. And you might, and he even says like, I can't quite put my finger on what it is that they want, but it seems like there's sort of, or at least some people's um, or some groups are kind of drawn to nobility and i don't know i guess he doesn't seem to think through something like uh the possibility of a people coming to love noble virtue and the noble tasks that require uh human excellence uh it seems like he's just more concerned with you having the freedom to do whatever you want with the door closed <laughs> i i
1: i had not considered that being Perhaps his motivating desire it's certainly not uh as expansive he doesn't have as expansive a vision as other thinkers on this subject but um I mean part of me thinks he, he's happy to or if he's not happy, he's at least going to put a good face on his failure right uh and talk about, even though this is another failure, or even though maybe mankind always will fail in this question of liberty, at least it's beautiful. At least it's, uh, part of what it means to be human is to be a riddle, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it makes me think now. Uh, I hadn't thought of this before, but just something like that near the end of the essay, he maybe does make a couple or at least one other moral appeal to the reader. um, When he seems to suggest that like, well, the only reason that you like positive liberty of any sort is it gives you kind of intellectual and emotional stability. Like it's a rock that you can rest upon so that you don't have to worry about making choices. You would rather believe that there's like nature or God or reason that's external to you, that if only you could access it, you'd always have a sense of what's required or what you need to be doing. And that that emotional stability is what you want, but you don't, you lack the toughness that's required to come to grips with the fact that you can't rationally adjudicate between these things. But also, dear reader, I would like you to choose my thing anyway. And so I'm going to like <laughs> tell you, because, and then again, it seems like he is still providing a kind of universal answer through pluralism, which you know, doesn't admit of as much diversity as it pretends to, I guess, or diversity of ideas. Well, I mean, or almost, yeah, there's very little in a way. Well, we know that today
1: at least, very least it's very, it's, it's clear as day today that what, uh, Berlin calls relative and pluralistic is a, is just a preference for uh what is shameful <laughs> <laughs> um you and, and i i mean that sounds kind of jokey but it's a preference for those who would normally be excluded from uh decent society so
0: well, go ahead oh well no I, I guess yeah so i i think i think you're right mm. Uh, but I have like a hard time wrapping my head around the way in which he seems to prefer negative liberty, but at least negative liberty as originally understood maybe by the American founders is actually like a way to allow the most excellence to outcompete those who are less less excellent. That there's like a way in which at least there was a hope at the beginning of liberalism that if you just – provide this like open contest that the best will rise into the positions that they deserve to have. Um, But so it seems like somehow, I guess maybe I'm having trouble putting my finger on like how, because I think you're right to say that there's like an egalitarian push in Berlin's thought at the same time that he prefers negative liberty, which might not necessarily point to egalitarianism.
1: Well, and I mean, I would say that, the natural rights theory of the founding is not quote unquote pluralistic. Uh, There might be some doctrine of, you know, toleration of some sort, but mm-hmm. it's a very different thing to tell people, look, we are going to focus on what's important. I'm sorry that your theological differences make you want to kill each other, but it's not important. Right. right. That's, I mean, I know that there's a whole rhetorical apparatus around uh, religious to- re- religious toleration, which cuts against what I just said. It says, "Oh no, like it, you know, it, it's not about that." But it, that's what it is about, okay? And uh, for the American founders, the doctrine of rights was not at all, uh, or if at all, not really an egalitarian leveling doctrine. So much as it was, a doctrine that cut away at what was unimportant. And was like uh it was a universal standard in the high sense of universal standard, which is to say, uh, an ideal rather than like mm, a baseline that everybody should should be given.
0: Like a form that only fits certain matter? Well, it definitely does that. I mean, but that they didn't conceive of it that way.
1: I see. I would I mean I wouldn't think they I don't think they did. Um Oh no. Okay. Now I understand what you mean when you say that. Uh, yeah, they definitely thought that, uh, only certain highly civilized peoples could achieve a natural rights government. That's what you meant, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I agree. Yeah. <clears throat> well, do you have any last, cause I think I cut you off a little bit earlier to push in this direction. Did you have any last, um, thoughts that you wanted to say about the end of the essay or anything else in the essay?
1: Uh, I just think the end of the essay is a poetical flight into relativism. Um, you know, you have to make the relativist answer poetical because it's not strictly logical. It's so easily blown up by common objections. Um, just like the weighing thing, like, oh, if you want to weigh rights, like by what standard are they weighed? That, that mm-hmm. simple question destroys the whole, the whole impetus to go towards talking about weighing. So you, he ends up with all this really poetical. And, um, and he just, he takes some pleasure in it. He takes some pleasure in it being tragically, you know, human beings are the crooked branch. And, uh, in a way that's beautiful to me because uh, it has to be. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like savoring the failure a little bit at the end and trying to beautify it. Yeah. Like it was maybe,
1: <laughs> maybe Strauss will, uh, throw cold water on all of, uh, our claims to have understood
0: this enlightening essay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be, uh, cool to go through Strauss's essay and talk about that uh, next time. So Strauss's essay is called relativism. You probably find a PDF online or in the book, the rebirth of classical political rationalism. So we look forward to talking about that next time. And thank you for listening. Uh, Fokian and Cerberus are out.